It is well decided, and we agree, that students do not shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse door. However, it is equally well decided that those constitutional rights will be administered in a way that is sensitive to the school environment. Hello and welcome back to the High School SCOTUS podcast, where we talk about how the decisions of the Supreme Court and the words of the Constitution play out behind the school house gate. As always, I'm Elise Benner. And I'm Hannah Sorrell. If you've been paying attention to the podcast, our last five episodes have focused on affirmative action, the legal history, the diversity rationale, the social and cultural debate around race conscious policies, basically everything anyone would want to know before the court hands down their decision in Harvard versus Students for Fair Admissions and University of North Carolina versus Students for Fair Admissions, the two affirmative action cases in the spring. And while we are planning on releasing probably a few more episodes on affirmative action, we wanted to mix it up with an interview that is especially close to my heart. Recently, we spoke with Julia Olson, who's the founder and executive director of Our Children's Trust, which is a nonprofit public interest law firm that provides legal services to youth in an effort to secure their legal rights to a safe climate. Julia is chief legal counsel in Juliana versus United States, a constitutional climate change case brought by 21 young plaintiffs against the United States government for violating their fundamental Fifth Amendment rights. Even before Julia founded Our Children's Trust, she was working to save the climate as an attorney for grassroots conservation groups. She is an inspiration, and we think it's especially fitting to have someone focused on the legal rights of young people on the podcast. On a personal note, for the past four to five years, depending on how you want to count it. I've been mentored by Andrea Rogers, who works closely with Julia as a senior attorney at our Children's Trust. And their organization does so much amazing work for kids around the country. I'm really excited you all get to hear this episode today. And when mapping out the podcast, we always knew that we would talk about the intersection of law, climate, and the Supreme Court. I mean, how could we not? We know that climate change is uniquely relevant to the next generation of leaders around the world, and the Supreme Court plays an increasingly large role in determining what the government can and must do about the climate crisis, as we'll talk more about with Julia. We think this interview is a great launching point for future discussions about climate change on the High School SCOTUS podcast, and can't wait for you to listen. We're so excited to have you on the podcast, Julia. And my first question for you is, what were you like in high school? In high school, I was in all of the accelerated academic classes. And I was also a runner. I ran cross country and track. Those were my sports. And I would say I was always a little bit shy and reserved around people I didn't know, but around people I knew, I was very, I think, social and outgoing. And I was definitely committed to my academics and worked hard and tried to get good grades and liked to get A's. I was definitely that kind of a student. I'm a cross country and track runner too, so I love that. Definitely a big part of my high school experience. But on the more career side, did you ever consider becoming a scientist or were you always interested in law? Where did environmentalism come in? What were you super interested in when you were moving from high school to college? So I was definitely going to be a doctor, like a medical doctor, not a jurist doctor. (laughs) 
And a lot of my mentors were medical people. My mom was a flight nurse. She flew around in helicopters in Colorado to rescue people. And my stepdad was an ER physician. So I was sort of immersed in this medical world. I also was always told that if you weren't good at chemistry, that you couldn't make it in medical school. And chemistry was one of my least favorite subjects. And so I... After kind of pursuing that thought for a while, by the time I got to college, what I realized is I really loved more of the macro sciences. I loved my global ecology class. I loved my coral reef ecology and understanding environmental science. And then I also really loved my political science classes. And what I was pretty good at was, was writing and debating. So I did model United Nations work. In, in college, went to the Harvard Model UN every year. And that was what really kind of lit this light about law and policy. Our next question is, because you were talking about how you were interested in the macro sciences and also law and political science, how did you find a way to tie together your interests in those two fields? Well, so I switched, I started out as a psychology major in college and then as I took some classes and, and discovered what was really interesting to me, I switched to an international affairs major where I could study a region of the world. For me, it was Western Europe. I was a French student. I took French for a decade. And so I needed a language to go with the region. And it was also a really exciting time in Europe because it was when the European Union was being formed. When I started my first year in college was when the Berlin Wall came down. So it was just such an exciting time to be studying that part of international affairs and history in the region. And then we had a science component. And so that's where I really merged in kind of global ecology science and environmental science with my study of what was happening in Europe and Western Europe specifically. And through that, I also really discovered something that had always been deep within me, which was a passion for the earth and nature and wanting to protect resources and learning more in college just about how our natural resources were so threatened. So it became pretty clear to me by the end of my college career that I wanted to do something to protect the environment and protect people and health. And law seemed like a good way to do that. Once you knew that what you wanted to do was protecting the earth through legal advocacy, how did you find a starting point for that kind of work? Because even when you were graduating, it was probably kind of a nascent thing that like we need to be using the legal field to advocate for protecting our environment. So how did you find your way in that field? Yeah, I took one class in college that was about international law. And I originally thought because I was studying international politics, that doing international law would be really cool. And after that class, I realized, oh, wait a second, like there's not a lot of enforcement mechanisms in international law. And that wasn't what interested me as much. And so then I started looking at domestic environmental law. And there were actually a lot of people doing public interest environmental law work in the early 90s. So when I applied to law school, I was looking for programs that had public interest environmental law classes. 
and clinics and so forth. And so I, I applied to UC Hastings and CU Boulder, Lewis and Clark were kind of the three schools I was looking at and ended up at Hastings where there were some, not as many faculty as they have today, but there were a handful of faculty teaching environmental law. And then they had a great clinical opportunity that allowed me to go and work at Earth Justice. That's so amazing. So now that we know a little bit more about you, we want to move into kind of understanding your work at Our Children's Trust a little more, which obviously I think is an awesome organization, but in general just does some pretty amazing things. And so when you were originally kind of doing work as a litigator for grassroots conservation groups, you were definitely doing very productive, selfless work. But did you end up feeling kind of like you couldn't live with yourself if you didn't do everything you could to fight for children and climate justice? Or how did that come about? That's a good question. I really loved the work I was doing on behalf of grassroots conservation organizations. And I also was fortunate to represent groups as big as the Sierra Club. So I represented small groups and large groups. And I got to work to protect amazing places like Yosemite National Park and some of our wild and scenic rivers in the West. And I got to stop pesticide projects and logging projects and protect endangered species habitat. And it was rewarding, but the challenge I saw is that even when we would win on these more local issues, or even a regional issue, that oftentimes the same issue would come back again and again and again. And one of my first cases on climate change was a case about these power plants that were being built in Mexico, south of the border from California. And they were trying to avoid all of US environmental law so that they could pollute as much as they wanted without having to comply. And it was the first case where I was really arguing about the impacts of climate change on the planet. And it opened my eyes to the fact that there was no legal theory that was out there at the time that was really going to force governments to change the direction, 180 degrees, right? Really start moving completely away from fossil and towards clean energy. And so it was around that time I was having my babies and becoming a mom and looking at these little helpless beings who were going to walk on the earth, hopefully for a really long time and need it to be safe. And so that was when I started thinking, okay, how can I use my legal training in a bigger way to do something about the climate crisis? I feel like the confluence of both seeing the legal side of it and also seeing the personal side of it and then being able to see how those two things come together. That's incredible. How did you get up the courage and the bravery to say, like, I'm going to start my own thing and I'm going to step off a ledge and say that I'm going to try this and see if it works out because I know this is what I need to be spending my time doing. And what challenges did you face and how did you kind of get up the courage to do that? I think... At some level, I've been able to kind of put aside fear and not make decisions based on fear. So after I became a lawyer, I worked at Earth Justice for a couple of years, and then I was looking for jobs and there weren't a lot of job openings and in the place where I wanted to live. And so I actually started my own solo practice and kind of hung my own shingle and started taking cases and working with other solo practitioners as lawyers. And that took a little bit of courage and it was risky, right? I didn't know if I would be able to pay my bills. 
And so I think one of the things I've always done is not be driven by financial risk and will I make enough money, right, to support myself? And so I was fortunate that in my career, I was able to support myself and make enough money. And so when I took a little bit more downtime as my kids were young, gave me the space to think about a new idea. And then it was a pretty natural transition to say, okay, I'm going to move away from this practice that's broader in the environmental field and really focus exclusively on climate and found our children's trust. And it was just, it was kind of a natural progression, like, okay, this is the next risk and who knows if we'll be able to fund it and who knows if I'll have a salary doing this, but we're going to give it our best shot. And really it was the mission that was most important to me. But you can't do any of these things if you don't have people who you can rely on and people you can collaborate with and people who will support you on that road. And I've always had that. Like, so when I started my law practice as a young lawyer, I had mentors. And when I founded our Children's Trust, I had professors like Mary Wood and I had other colleagues and really experienced attorneys like my dear friend Sharon Duggan in California. I had people who were there to brainstorm with and think critically with and to really support the effort. So it wasn't just me. It was definitely a lot of really powerful people, a lot of awesome women who supported me in the beginning. See, this like isn't a fair story to tell because Elise is nodding and I'm like, oh, I want to cry. This cuts so close to my heart. Like the combination of mentorship and our children's trust with my own experience holds very true. But through stuff I've done with Andrew, I've been able to like hear about a ton of really amazing young people who come to our children's trust. And so how does your organization connect youth with climate related legal services? And how do young people kind of come to know our children's trust and come with their stories about being injured and impacted by the climate crisis? Yeah, that process has really evolved over the years. So in the beginning, it was partnering with a youth organization called Kids Versus Global Warming that had been started by Alec Lewers. And Alec and his mom and their family reached out to all of these youth that they had been working with across the United States and even globally. And then through them, we met Shatesca Martinez of Earth Guardians. And Earth Guardians was an important partner who reached out to other youth and sometimes it was just people we knew putting the word out to other lawyers or friends in different states who said, oh, I know a young person who's really passionate about working on climate change. I should put you in touch with them. And then as the years went by and we got more media coverage, then young people started contacting us and hearing about, reading about what we were doing and sending an email to the info at ourchildrenstrust.org and saying, hey, will you bring a case in Virginia? Will you help me bring a case in Texas? And so it's been exciting to see that we've become a resource that young people can reach out to in addition to the connections we already have. How rewarding is it when you see someone come to you and just bring that case to you and be like, I am paying attention to what's happening in my state or city because I know the work you're doing and I know that you can help us. How does that feel? And does that make you feel like what you're doing is worthwhile? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's one of the most gratifying things to have young people reach out and say, please help. And 
it's also, I mean, there are times when we haven't had capacity, right? So like in the Virginia case, the Layla versus the Commonwealth case, it's active right now. It took us at least a year longer than we wanted to, to put that case together. And the young people who contacted us, they went so far as to make a video to try to recruit attorneys. We needed a local attorney in Virginia to partner with us in the case. And they put together a video to do their own recruitment. We gave them research to do and said, hey, can you start doing this research for us on some factual issues that we need for the case? We don't have time right now. And they did research, you know, so to see that level of engagement is just incredible to be working on this really important part of our democracy and protecting our planet with young people who are really putting in the time and energy to make it happen is so rewarding. So continuing to talk about how awesome young people can be, do you think that children are uniquely able to break the cycle of politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, who are defending the fossil fuel lobbying industry? I do. I think young people bring clarity and a determination and sort of an uncompromising will of just like calling it as it is and not being willing to back down from what is really right in this moment on climate. And I, I was just on a panel with, of course, a bunch of adults the other day talking about climate litigation and talking about new regulations and the Inflation Reduction Act, right? The new climate bill. And everything everyone was saying was through this very adult lens. And they were looking at everything about how it affects adults today and how it affects this generation. And I think what young people do is they just turn that narrative on its head and say, hey, y'all aren't the only ones in the room, right? There's like, there's this whole constituency of young people, many of whom can't yet vote, but some are starting to, and we really matter in this. So I, yeah, I think young people with the support of adults who get it can really do a lot to change that dynamic. So when you get these young people that clearly have a climate issue they want to advocate on behalf of, how do you find the legal backing, so to say, for taking action to fix that problem. Climate change, obviously, it's an existential crisis, but then finding the legal roots of arguments in favor of increased climate protections can be hard. So how do you connect the two? Yeah, what we do at our Children's Trust is we go straight to the heart of where human rights are protected in a legal system. And in places like the United States, it's often in our constitutions. That's where really those foundational rights live, protecting our lives and our liberties, our freedom. Like why we institute government is to protect our basic safety and health and happiness. So we'll go to the constitution and then we'll look at the law that's developed under those constitutional provisions. And then we will apply that law to the facts of the case of, okay, so what's happening on the ground? What, what is the government doing that's contributing to climate change? Or what are they not doing that they're legally required to do? And in almost every state, every country, there is a human right that is codified, that's written down 
in some place that you can try to enforce against governments. And so it's just a matter of finding the best hook and then bringing the science forward and bringing the youth stories forward of how they're being harmed and stringing it all together into a story that shows how wrong what is happening is. I'm excited to ask this next question after you say that, because it's what case are you proudest of working on at our children's trust? Well, I personally, I have to say the Juliana versus United States case, because it's the case that I've personally led and had the deep honor of representing 21 amazing human beings. And they have been in this with us for over seven years now. And I've had the pleasure of watching them grow and mature and evolve in who they are and watching the law really grow and evolve along with their lives and their stories. And none of that would have happened without those 21 people stepping up and standing up and putting themselves out there. So definitely Juliana. Now that you've gotten us on the topic of Juliana, we want to spend a little bit of time talking about the case because it's obviously so transformative and meaningful. How did that case come to your attention? How did you find those or how did those 21 young people find you and start the seven years of work? Juliana came out of losing our first federal case. So our first federal case was on behalf of Alec Lures and a handful of other youth. And we lost in the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. And it was a really, it was a different case because we were arguing in that case that there was a federal public trust doctrine and that the federal government was failing to protect public trust resources like air and water. And so we were arguing the government was failing to do something. And we disagreed with the loss. We petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court for review and we didn't get it. And so after that, I went back to the drawing board. Okay, what do we learn from this case? And how can we better represent young people going forward against the federal government? And Shataska actually was... He wasn't a plaintiff in that first case, the first federal case, but he was a plaintiff in a Colorado case. And he was just increasingly engaged with these legal arguments. And he said, Julia, when you bring the next federal case, I want to be a plaintiff. And so he was like, I'm ready. Let's go. And so we just started as quickly as we could putting together what became the Juliana complaint. And we also knew that Kelsey Juliana wanted to be a plaintiff. And we, you know, we had a handful of youth who were ready to go. And then they started reaching out to their network of youth, many of whom had been working on climate change and then some who hadn't, some who hadn't been activists previously and word spread. And originally I said, okay, let's have like maybe 10 to 15 was a good number because as an attorney, you know, you have responsibilities to your clients and it's a lot of communication and you have to manage the case well. And more people kept coming in and more people kept coming in. We got to 20. I said, no more. <laughs> and then we had one more. And so it was just an organic evolution of having these people come in and we'd interview them and make sure that they had injuries that they could bring forward to the court. That's how it came to be. Just really quickly, when you say that these youth became plaintiffs. What exactly do you mean? And clarify, when you say injury, do you also mean that they were like harmed in some way 
by the adverse effects of climate change? Yes. So it's one of the requirements in our legal system that in order to bring a case and have a judge hear your case, you have to be injured in some way by the defendants. And so all of these 21 young people, they had to be able to articulate how they're being harmed by the climate crisis. And those harms range from psychological harm to physical harm. Young people who have asthma and their lungs are being harmed by the increased pollution and wildfire smoke to people having their homes flooded, being displaced from their homes or schools because of climate events, fires, evacuations, you know, all of those things. And so, yes, all of the plaintiffs needed to be able to identify an injury or harm or an impact, you could use any of those words, that results from what's happening with climate crisis. I'm glad you said Juliana was your proudest case, because I think that hopefully Kelsey's last name goes down in some history books. But I guess our question is, as someone who connects with Andrew and hears about what's going on in different trials and things like that, is it frustrating that courts will often like just refuse to reach the merits of your argument? Because like in the Virginia case, judges rule that state courts can't hear your claims. It has been one of the most frustrating parts of this work over the last 12 years. And it was unexpected because I've never been denied standing for my plaintiffs in any case ever, (laughs) right? And I've always been able, I know what the hurdles are. I know how to meet them. And for some reason, and largely because of the way governments have argued these cases, it's made courts question their role. And I think climate change has been seen for decades as a political issue, but it's a scientific issue. It is an issue that's a life or death issue. You know, it's, it's not like climate change gets its own little special bubble that is separate from every other legal issue that courts deal with. It just doesn't and shouldn't. And I think some judges have forgotten what their central role is when they see climate case and aren't following the precedent that's just really clear about how not only should they hear these cases, but they have to hear these cases. It's part of their duty as the third branch of government. So that has been really frustrating, especially when you see that judges Judges will apologize, we're reluctant, we're, we feel badly, we wish we could take, you know, they see that there's a real merits issue here, and then they punt. And so the punting has been very frustrating, but we're, we're getting closer, you know, some judges aren't punting now, like our Montana judge has accepted that case and we're moving forward to trial and it will be true of other cases too. Does it sometimes feel like it's almost a bigger cultural and social issue that we think climate change isn't an issue that can and should be worked on through the legal system or isn't as big of a deal as it is? And then you have judges that think they can kind of abdicate their responsibility and be like, someone else will deal with this. How do you change the broader social perception of climate change almost, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think part of the problem is the way the media has treated climate change. And for a long time, they did really buy into this issue of this is a political, an issue of politics, right? And they would bring in climate denialism. And now we've moved away from that and people don't give climate deniers as much airtime as they used to. 
but it's still cast as a Democrat issue versus a Republican issue. Whereas if you look at other issues of health, when lead was contaminating the water in Flint, Michigan, and harming people, that wasn't a Republican issue or a Democrat issue, right? It, that was just an issue of health of people and the safety of water quality. And so I think what we have to do is we have to keep educating people about that. Yeah, this is a, an issue of science, but it's not as complex. And when there are fundamental rights at stake, like young people's rights to life and liberty, that those issues don't get left to the political branches. Those issues don't get left to voters. Those issues are not up for a vote in this 2022 election because courts have an obligation to make sure that governments are not violating those rights, like period. What legislators and voters and others can do is they can help weigh in on solutions. They can pass legislation and there can be policy made but all of that is subject to judicial review if it's violating constitutional rights, right? Just like in any other constitutional issue. So there is no special out for climate change. <laughs> and I think we're starting to get people there, but it's been, it's been a long haul to make that shift. Yeah. And I'm going to shift gears a little bit to talking about some recent Supreme Court decisions, because a few weeks ago, you submitted some filings in support of Juliana that had to do with Dobbs and West Virginia versus EPA and Bruin, which are cases that your legal team said, like, it's surprising we're citing these cases because these aren't things we really support, but we feel they help our case. So can you, because we haven't talked about West Virginia versus EPA much on the podcast in particular, can you tell us a little bit about the impact of the Supreme Court's recent decision in West Virginia versus EPA on current and future environmental policy? Sure. So from my perspective, what the Supreme Court said in West Virginia versus EPA is that EPA does have power to regulate pollution, including carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. What it doesn't have power to do is to regulate the energy system or the makeup of our energy system. So the Chief Justice Chief Justice Roberts wrote in the majority opinion that he believed that EPA had overstepped its role and that instead of focusing on pollution, it was trying to tell the states, get rid of your coal plants, you can use gas, but you need to move to renewables. So it was talking about the composition of how states produced energy. And for that reason, the court said, EPA, you overstepped when you created the Clean Power Plan under Obama, which was just a regulatory program for trying to reduce emissions. But interestingly, in our Juliana case, we actually pointed to the Clean Power Plan as a way in which EPA was violating constitutional rights because the Clean Power Plan was allowing too much pollution. Like it was gonna keep allowing way too much pollution through mid-century. The other thing the court did was it said, look, EPA can set a national standard for how much pollution is allowed. Like a national standard could be set under the Clean Air Act for carbon dioxide, for example. And I think the Chief Justice pointed to that provision of the Clean Air Act to say, yeah, 
EPA could set a national standard, and then the responsibility for meeting that would fall to states. And that's actually consistent with something we've been pushing for for a long time, is for there to be a what's called a national ambient air quality standard for carbon dioxide. And we think it should be set at 350 parts per million. And then the last thing that the court did was there are these two doctrines. One's called the major question doctrine and then the non-delegation doctrine. And basically what those mean, and they're, they're kind of they're principles that have existed for a while, but the court is now trying to make these new official doctrines. And what they're saying is when Congress passes legislation, it needs to be really specific about power it gives to an executive agency, in this case, EPA. And so the court is signaling that it's going to really look closely at is what the agency is doing, how it's carrying out its job consistent with the language of the statute, or is it kind of taking more power than Congress gave it? And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the future. But one thing that we've been saying for quite some time is EPA was never given power to destroy the climate system. And so EPA is overstepping, right? It's allowing too much pollution, and that's a violation of the authority Congress gave it. So there is a way in which we don't disagree with, with that entirely, but we would have come to a different decision in West Virginia versus EPA than, than the Supreme Court did. But there are aspects of the opinion that are still helpful, I think, going forward. Is it frustrating that it almost feels like the Supreme Court, right, and maybe in the future as well, like they're deciding cases about, and obviously EPA, as you've mentioned, they don't have license to make these determinations that probably are actually far more harmful for our climate, like they're not going far enough. But is it frustrating that the Supreme Court is kind of, it's almost ch challenging things that are intended, obviously, to like make the environment cleaner and improve our climate rather than actually like pushing to defend our climate. Do you know what I mean? Like the cases are not progress oriented cases. They are almost regression oriented. Like we need to not take these steps forward in defending our climate. So is that a dichotomy frustrating? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's just so much obstructionism <laughs> to progress and dealing with these really big issues and what the Supreme Court is doing. They're putting up more and more little barriers that advocates have to move around. And in some cases, they're putting up huge walls, like in the case of the, the Dobbs opinion on abortion rights. The thing that I want to ask you that I found, I think, frustrating about this opinion, and I've been told you have a very nuanced take on this decision, which we're already kind of hearing, but I found that case particularly frustrating because at the end of the day, it just felt like an advisory opinion. That part of the EPA, like they had already repealed the thing that they were trying to have a case about. So it wasn't even in effect anymore. And that was just very confusing to me as someone who's been reading tons about standing for Juliana to be like, all these plaintiffs have standing, they have injury, there's this actual case or controversy. And then the Supreme Court listened to a case where I feel like the standing was questionable? Like, what did you make of that? Yeah, the Supreme Court never should have heard that case. As you said, Hannah, the EPA had already revoked the Clean Power Plan. It was never going to be implemented at this point. There was no reason for the court to review the case. And clearly they had something to say and they wanted to say it. But 
there was not an active case or controversy that they should have been hearing. And it is, it's, it's ironic because it's really about like, is the case moot? Is the case ripe? Yeah, is there standing? There's all these questions. And back when I was an environmental attorney, lawyers would bring cases about like big forest plans that the Forest Service had put together or big regulatory programs that would deal with how we're going to deal with logging on our forests. And the court, the Supreme Court said in one of these cases, we're not going to hear this because there's no timber harvest. There's no logging decision that's been made yet. This is just like a big regulatory plan and nothing's actually happening. So we're not going to hear the case, which really should have been instructive of this case. Nothing's happening on the ground. It's not being implemented. We're not going to hear this. And they chose to do it anyway. And so there is inconsistency and a bit of hypocrisy in the way the court is deciding cases. It almost feels like the justiciability questions that come before the merit questions, so like cases being moot or having standing, it feels like you can kind of just pick and choose. If you want to hear the case, you'll say it has standing. And if the, maybe the case is moot, but you still really want to talk about this issue and make a decision that will impact future cases, it's just very subjective. Yeah, and a lot of the doctrines that close the courthouse doors are subjective and they keep people out when the court doesn't like your case. But then a lot of them are judge-made doctrines. So they can decide, oh, we're going to apply it in this way for a case we really want to hear. And so it, it isn't fair and equitable about who's getting access and who isn't. Yeah, it's very perceptive. So we want to zoom out a bit because this podcast is really intended for high school students, for people that are interested in how the law affects their rights on a regular basis. Why is it so important for young people to understand the role that legal, the legal system plays in the climate fight and kind of engage with how their human rights in the legal system can help them advance climate justice? That's a really good question. I think we need young people today to understand their constitutional rights, period. I think we need people to understand that we have three branches of government and the role of each branch of government and all the different ways you can interact with your government. So a lot of people think of voting as like the one way you're communicating with your government about what you want. But there's so many other ways. Like you can participate in writing comments on things that the executive branch is doing and go to public hearings. And you can pay attention to what's happening in the courts or get active in what's happening in the courts. And I think engagement with all three branches of government is part of our civic responsibility and different people will do it in different ways. But I find that a lot of young people don't even understand that, oh, I could go to court. Like, I mean, one, I could even go watch a court proceeding. And two, I could be a plaintiff or I could come in as amicus curiae, as a friend of the court and tell a judge what I think. Like, there's all these ways to participate. And so just educating young people about ways you can get engaged and you can participate in your democracy and in your state or your city or with your federal government and your nation is so important because we need your generation to really grow to be the kind of leaders that frankly don't exist today. We need to grow civic engagement and being smart, engaged citizens, because I think it's really lacking across the board. And if we had more people engaged, maybe we wouldn't be facing all of these crises we're facing right now in our democracy. 
And so I didn't really answer your question on climate, but I do, I see climate as the most important threat to democracy and the most important threat to all of your lives in the future. And it's an amazing opportunity for participation and to shape the world that you all want to live in. That answer was beautiful. And Elise is going to have to send me the timestamp so that I can play it for the civics class that I'm a teacher's assistant for. But our final question kind of has to do with something you just said, which is it feels like the kinds of leaders that we need right now don't really exist today. And there's just this level of hopelessness. So what do you tell young people who might be our listeners or who might care a lot about the climate crisis, but they don't have that kind of power and they feel powerless in the face of this 6-3 conservative supermajority on the court and a government that's not really listening to their interests? Well, I can tell you what I do. <laughs> and that is, I really look at the struggles that have come before us. And there have been people throughout our history who have just performed amazing feats of heroism in the face of just daunting odds and in the face of violence and in the face of persecution and oppression that is unlike anything I've experienced in my life. And so I really look to what people have gone through in the past to bring us to where we are today. And where we are today is in some ways so much better, like the rights that even we have, if you identify as female, or if you identify as non-binary, different ways of identifying and being in the world did not have as much opportunity and protection and equality as we do today. So there's been tremendous progress and it's not perfect, but I think really noticing. And then the other thing to do is nothing in life is static. Like what the moment we are in today and when you're listening to this podcast will not be the same moment tomorrow and things change. And people are born and people die and people move out of positions. And so things can change in an instant, right? I mean, I remember so clearly when Justice Scalia died and I thought how tragic for his family and what a huge shift this means for the Supreme Court. And then the same thing when Justice Ginsburg died, right? So like things change in a moment, new leaders rise up new technology happens. We have abundant capacity for creativity and ingenuity and change. And I think that capacity for change, we can really hold on to. And I do believe the Margaret Mead saying that, I can't remember exactly what it is, but that a small handful of dedicated citizens really can change the world. And I think she says it's the only thing that ever has, but it, it is the thing that happens. It's when small groups of people come together and they have ideas and creativity and they want progress and then they put it into action. So anyone listening can be part of a small collective that comes together to do that. And that's part of being human and moving forward. Well, Julia, thank you so much for talking to us today. You are such an inspiration completely. And the work that you are doing at Our Children's Trust is just, it's incredible. So thank you so much. Thank you both. What you're doing is incredible. I wish I had had the know-how to do this when I was your age. I mean, truly, like you're already light years ahead of where I was as a high school student. So I have great hopes. It's amazing. Well, thank you so much again. We appreciate it. 
What an amazing interview and conversation we got to have with Julia. We're so excited that we got to talk to her today. And as the end of the year approaches, we are so grateful for all of the support that the podcast has received in its first two seasons. We can't believe that a bunch of strangers, lawyers, teachers, and students alike would take the time to listen to two high school students talk about constitutional law. But we also can because our guests are really, really great and amazing and just the smartest people we know. On that note, we also wanted to say thank you again to all of the amazing, amazing, amazing professors who have taken time out of their extraordinarily busy lives to come and talk with us and break down complex Supreme Court minutia for high school students. It's hard to express how much your kindness and dedication means to us. We hope everyone is and continues to have a fantastic holiday and a definitely well-deserved break. We can't wait to continue recording episodes for you next year. But for now, leave us a rating, drop us a review, and for more coverage of the Supreme Court by teenagers, check out the High School SCOTUS website at highschoolscotus.com. On the blog, you can read oral argument previews, opinion analysis, and interviews with eminent legal scholars. Literally everything you need to stay in touch with the court. That's highschoolscotus.com. We can't wait to see you next time.